0: Thank you so much, Brad, and welcome to the 3ABN hosting of the Amen Conference this year. Obviously, the pandemic has thrown a lot of things into, uh, uh, well, let's just say adaptability is the new norm for the day, and we're so happy to be here with you this morning. And I want to share a message with you entitled, Off to a Good Start. Now, this is the Adventist Medical Evangelism Network, and what we want to do is be evangelists for Jesus Christ in all that we do. And A lot of times people struggle with where do I even begin? How do I even get started with this? And that's the burden of our message this morning is looking at inspired instruction for how we begin this good work. But before we do any study of God's word, of course, let's begin with a word of prayer. Please bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this beautiful day. Really for any day of life, Lord, is a gift from you. And at this time in this day, Lord, we would ask that you would send your Holy Spirit in a special way to bless us now. As we open your word, seeking not only to understand, but to apply its truth in our lives. Please, Lord, make us more like Jesus, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to take them out to John chapter 10. We're going to be in the 10th chapter of John, and we're going to look at something. Actually, we're going to look at several passages in pretty quick order to establish uh, something that I find particularly interesting. That Jesus was often tested, he was often doubted about his divine credential. Was he really who he claimed to be? And in John chapter 10, we see the enemies of Jesus approaching him with this very subject. We'll start with verse 24, John chapter 10. It says, Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. But then watch verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now, that's interesting. You think about what Jesus is saying there is, in response to their simple question, if you're who you say you are, just tell us. And he said, I've already told you and you don't believe me. What more can I do? And he says, take a look at the works. In fact, if you go down to verse 37 of the same passage, Jesus says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. Now think about the weight of that. He's saying, if I don't do what you expect or what should be seen of a Messiah, then don't believe my words. Goes on to say, but if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Now, of course, his enemies were always trying to corner him and pressure him and kind of undermine his ministry, but You find this same skepticism even in some of his closer associates. For instance, his disciples. Stay in the Gospel of John. Go to chapter 14. John chapter 14, a very well-known encounter with his own disciples where they said in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us can imagine how discouraging that might have been for Jesus, who was trying to demonstrate the love of God all of his entire life, and particularly in his public ministry, and then his closest associates say, if we could just see a glimpse of the Father. (laughs) Thus Jesus said in verse 9, have I been with you so long and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? But then if you go to look in verse 11, he continues his explanation. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Think about what he's saying here. It's like, even if you don't take my word for it, you have to at least recognize the quality of the works. They demonstrate my true identity. In fact, in the Desire of Ages, that inspired commentary on the life of Christ we read this fascinating insight about the childhood of Jesus. You know, he grew up in a home where not everyone was on board with his heaven-sent mission, and even his mother at times questioned the veracity of his claim. Find this on page 92 of The Desire of Ages. Quote, at times she, that being Mary, wavered between Jesus and his brothers who did not believe that he was the sent of God. But evidence was abundant that his was a divine character. Okay, so think about that. She's wavering, she's in the valley of decision, yet something, this evidence, tipped the scales in the right direction. She saw him sacrificing himself for the good of others. In fact, she goes on to explain, Jesus was the healer of the body as well as of the soul. He was interested in every phase of suffering that came under his notice, and to every sufferer he brought relief his kind words, having a soothing balm. None could say that he had worked a miracle. Now, that's an important point. It wasn't like in Jesus' childhood he was like, you know, raising the dead or, or giving sight to the blind or anything like that. But something miraculous in his bearing, some disinterested benevolence exuded from him that gave credibility to his claim. Again, none could say that he had worked a miracle but virtue the healing power of love went out from him to the sick and distressed. Thus, in an unobtrusive way, he worked for the people from his very childhood. And then the sentence that kind of knocked me back a little bit when I really understood what was being said is the next sentence. And this was why, after his public ministry began, so many heard him gladly. Think about the weight of that. That Christ's preparation for his declaration gave credibility to the message he bore. This was why so many heard him gladly. Now, go to one more in the Gospel of Luke. If you're there in John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right before you've got to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, starting with verse 20, because we've seen the enemies of Jesus doubt his claim. You see, his own disciples doubt his claim. You see, even his mother question his identity. But if there was one person you think would never doubt, and that would be his prophetic forerunner, John the Baptist. But lo and behold, Luke chapter 7 and verse 20. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Imagine how that must have felt in Jesus' humanity to hear that kind of doubt expressed from his own prophetic forerunner. But notice the response. Now, let's think it through for just a moment. He's been asked a very simple direct question. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Obviously, Jesus could have most simply and succinctly said, yes, I am he. I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been looking for. Go tell him the good word. But let's use a little bit of logic. If Christ were a false Messiah, isn't that exactly what a false Messiah would say? Sure. So he needs to do more than declare the truth. He has to demonstrate the truth. Thus we read in verse 21, and that very hour, He cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Before he says a word to those who are questioning him, he turns around and does the works of him who sent him. Then, verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me." Again, Desire of Ages, page 216, commenting on this interaction. The evidence of his divinity was seen in its adaptation to the needs of suffering humanity. His glory was shown in his condescension to our low estate. The disciples bore the message and it was enough. And then she adds, the works of Christ not only declare him to be the Messiah, but showed in what manner his kingdom was to be established. So the works of Christ not only gave his own personal signature of authenticity, but it also was a model, a template for the work that all of us should be doing as disciples of Jesus Christ. How his kingdom would be set up. So time and again we see that whether it's by his foes, his followers, his family, or even his prophetic forerunner, the response of Jesus to the skepticism around him was always the same. If you don't believe me, at least believe my works. This is why in Acts chapter 10, in verse 38, when Peter has the opportunity to preach Jesus to the Gentile household of Cornelius, he summarizes in one sentence the entire ministry of Jesus, simply explaining how, quote, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He did all the doing good because God was with him. It was the evidence of his divinity. This is also why Jesus, who knows firsthand the undeniable power of good works to demonstrate genuine godliness, commands us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What we may not often reflect on, however, is that this disinterested benevolence, this doing of good for others, is not a New Testament notion. It wasn't invented by Jesus as a novel way to open hearts to the reception of gospel truth. In fact, this has been the expectation of God's people ever since he's had a people, The quintessential do-good-for-others passage in Scripture is actually found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Hopefully you're familiar with it. If you go to Isaiah chapter 58, you read the account of these people of the Lord who, by all appearances, are genuinely interested in in a revival experience in their own life, yet they're lacking the results they're expecting. They're disappointed and it says in verse 3, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? And why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? They seem to be frustrated with the Lord because they've tried to do all these good things that he had asked them to do. But at the end of the day, they didn't experience the revival they hoped. And Jesus explains to them the remedy in verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking witness, if you extend, verse 10, your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. You see, the people that the Lord corrects here in Isaiah chapter 58 were not pagans. They weren't worshiping idols, they weren't marrying heathens, they weren't eating unclean meat, or any other overtly sinful behavior, yet they didn't experience the blessing of the Lord they were sure that could be theirs. It seems they were so absorbed in their personal spiritual experience that they neglected to do the good for others that Israel was originally established to do. Put it another way, they were so intent on appearing good before God that they neglected the responsibility of doing good for others. This passage is not only an indictment of God's Old Testament church, but sadly it's also an indictment for God's end-time church today. Repeatedly, the messenger of the Lord invokes this very passage of Scripture as an admonition for us today. Listen to this from Welfare Ministry, page 32. Quote, the work specified in these words, referring to Isaiah 58, is the work God requires his people to do. It is a work of God's own appointment. With the work of advocating the commandments of God and repairing the breach that has been made in the law of God, we are to mingle compassion for suffering humanity. As a people, we must take hold of this work. Love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. Think about that for a minute, friends. We're gonna come back to it in a moment. But love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. In other words, it would still be truth without it, but perhaps they wouldn't hear it without seeing it first. Christian service, page 139. I cannot too strongly urge all our church members, all who are true missionaries, all who believe the third angel's message, all who turn away their feet from the Sabbath to consider the message of the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Now, take in what she's just said, by the way. We're at the Adventist Medical Evangelism Network, all of the professional medical personnel. But she doesn't say, I want all physicians or all nurses. That's included in there. But she wants all members who are all missionaries. Which, by the way, I love the fact that there's a synonymous relationship between members and missionaries. I'm not going to take that time to have this sermon right now, but I will briefly tell you that one of the great frustrations I believe we have in the Seventh-day Adventist Church is we have far too many members (laughs) and far too few missionaries. In Ellen White's mind, there was no difference between a member of the church and a missionary for Jesus Christ. But she says, for all church members, all who are true missionaries, all who believe the third angels, all who turn their feet away from the Sabbath to consider the message of the 58th chapter of Isaiah, the work of beneficence, that is doing good for others, enjoined in this chapter is the work that God requires his people to do at this time, the work required at this time. It is a work of his own appointment. Medical, mission, uh, medical mystery, uh, ministry, sorry, page 263, listen to this. I have been instructed to refer our people to the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Read this chapter carefully and understand the kind of ministry that will bring life into the churches. Is it possible there are churches that exist that are not truly alive? Is it possible that it's not because they don't want to be alive, but they haven't been doing the very work? Is it possible that the Old Testament circumstance that Isaiah was speaking to is alive, or perhaps dead, likewise today? SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 4, page 1149. My brethren, you need to study more carefully the 58th chapter of Isaiah. This chapter marks out the only course that we can follow with safety. Evangelism, page 516, the 58th chapter of Isaiah contains present truth for the people of God. Here we see how medical missionary work and the gospel ministry are to be bound together as the message is given to the world. Medical ministry and the ministry of the word, gospel ministry, bound together as we give the message to the world. My Life Today, page 241, in the 58th chapter of Isaiah, the work that the people of God are to do in Christ's lines is clearly set forth. If they carry out the principles of the law of God and acts of mercy and love, they will represent the character of God to the world and receive the richest blessings of heaven. So friends, what we're seeing here today is that Jesus had a consistent answer to the skeptics in his time. And that was, if you don't hear my words, at least believe my works, because they demonstrate my divine credential. And that's exactly what God's people are supposed to do in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in the end times, is to replicate that model ministry of Jesus by doing good for God is with us. What would it look like, by the way, for a local church to take Isaiah 58 seriously? what would it look like if these instructions, this counsel, this admonition were taken to heart and every member was a missionary, the whole church was a living organism of good doing? What would it look like? Or perhaps the best example, at least the best documented example, in our Adventist history is from the early 20th century in San Francisco, California. From the Australasian Union Conference record of March 1, 1901, we read the following testimony shared by Mrs. White. Quote, From Elder J.O. Corliss, who is pastor of the San Francisco Church, we learn that there are many lines of Christian effort being carried forward by our brethren and sisters in San Francisco. And if you're keeping track at home, by my count, I believe we're about to read 14 different things happening. Okay? These include visiting the sick and destitute, finding homes, for orphans and work for the unemployed, nursing the sick and teaching the love of Christ from house to house, the distribution of literature and the conducting of classes for healthful living and the care of the sick. A school for the children is conducted in the basement of the meeting house. In another part of the city, a working man's home and medical mission is maintained. On Market Street near the city city hall, there is a bath establishment operated as a branch of the St. Helena Sanitarium. In the same locality is a depot of the health food company, where health foods are not only sold, but instruction is given as to reforms in diet. Near the center of the city, our people conduct a vegetarian cafe, which is open six days in the week. It is entirely closed on the Sabbath. Here, about 500 meals are served daily, and no flesh meats are used. Dr. and Mrs. Dr. Lamb are doing much medical work for the poor in connection with their regular practice, and Dr. Buchanan is doing much free work at the working man's home. At the medical and dental schools in the city, there are about 20 of our young people in attendance. Now, I've never in my life seen a local church that has that much creative, innovative, you know, frontline ministry happening. Vegetarian cafes, orphan work, you know, working man's home, doctors and nurses giving of their time freely, door-to-door work, all of it, right? Now, I would, if I saw that, I would say that is the quintessential, that is the best, that is the high point. But notice the very next words that Mrs. White writes. Quote, we earnestly hope that the steps taken in the future in the work in San Francisco will will still be steps of progress. (laughs) The work that has been done there is but a beginning. She looked at all that was going on and she said, that's a really good start. San Francisco is a world in itself, she says, and the Lord's work there is to broaden and deepen. You know, it would be easy to end the sermon there. It's so tempting to make a strong appeal for people to pour themselves into helping other people, their neighbors, their community members, their friends, or for churches to spend more time and more money addressing the temporal needs of their community. But I have to tell you, if we stopped here, it would only be an incomplete message. Allow me to be vulnerable for just a minute. I'm trying to disabuse my vocabulary from things like, let me be honest with you real quick, because it implies I haven't been honest up until that point, but in all transparency transparency and sincerity, let me say that I was almost afraid to present this message. Because what we've covered thus far is already so popular of a notion that it might unintentionally provide justification for some urban legends prevalent in, our, in many of our churches today. Let me explain. We hear so much about the need to do good works and practice friendship evangelism that many have come to believe that friendship is evangelism. That our only task is to reveal the benevolent character of God through good works to the point that our witness becomes almost exclusively passive. At least our gospel witness. We'll be active in ministry, active in doing good, but when it comes to the sharing of the message itself, we're so much into the good works that we never make it to the good words. I mean, how many times, even from those who have little regard for the prophetic authority of Ellen White, have we heard repeated that paragraph from Ministry of Healing, page 143? Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. By the way, I have to add, anytime you have to have a modifier, an adjective, like true before success, indicates there's such a thing as false success, right? But she says Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Those words are so potent that we can sometimes overlook the very next words where she writes, then he bade them follow me. Right now there's such a great interest in disinterested benevolence, in doing of good, of community needs and all those issues that are real, that are genuine, that are necessary. But we take what's necessary and believe it is sufficient. Friends, good works of disinterested benevolence are not the destination. They're merely the preparation for sharing the present truth of God's word. Just as in Jesus' ministry, so should it be in ours that good works give our message credibility. And our message in turn gives our good works eternal significance. Thus, in the work of soul winning, good works... Just get us off to a good start. Now, I've had this conversation enough times to know what comes next. (laughs) But wait, you might protest. Isn't making friends just to share the gospel with them disingenuous? Isn't it some form of dishonest bait and switch Oh, I thought you want to be friends. Oh, now you want me to take a Bible study. Now you want me to come to your church. Now you want me to believe like you believe. And so often we push back and go, no, 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 I don't want, friends, we have to be honest. Yes, I do want you to take a Bible study. I want you to be a member of my church. I want you to come to know Jesus Christ. There's nothing disingenuous about that at all. We think that disinterested means disconnected. I'm not interested in any of the things that brought you here, but my goal is, not to, is to meet you where we are and bring you to Jesus. Yes. The life and ministry of Jesus make it patently clear that disinterested benevolence does not mean no strings attached. Yes. The whole purpose of Christ's temporal work was to prepare hearts for his spiritual work. Yes. Even avowed atheists see the absurdity of Christians who don't try to convert people. (laughs) Now listen to this testimony. And I want to be clear right now, I'm not advocating that you listen to anything else this man has ever done. If you listen to his uh, presentations online, they're going to be filled with language we do not endorse. But it's understandable. You can't get mad at a worldling for being worldly. okay? But pendulette of the well-known... Magic team, you know, pen and teller, is not just an agnostic, he will admit. He'll even say, it's not that I wrestle with whether there's a God. He said, I know there is not a God. I know definitively I'm not moving from that. There is no God, he says. But he shares the story of one time after one of his performances... Uh, someone in the audience came up to him who who apparently had been brought up and used in his act as as a prop or something like that and they had a good time with their family there at the the show and he wanted to give Penn a gift and say thank you and he was looking for an opportunity to witness for his faith. And so he goes backstage, he meets with Brother Gillette and he hands them a copy of the New Testament and said, I really appreciated your show tonight. I wanted to give this to you as a gift. God bless you. And that was it. Now remember, he's doing this to an avowed, I wouldn't say militant, but very sincere atheist. When Pendulet got back to his room that night, he got on his blog, his video blog, his vlog, you know, and, he, and he, people have, now you are a media station anywhere you go with your phone in your pocket, and he puts it on his little record button, he explains how he felt about someone giving him a Bible. And this is what he said, quote, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. He goes on to explain, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He continues, I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that a truck was coming down uh, on you, bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. He's like, I'm not going to negotiate with you. If I know with the certainty there's a truck and you just don't buy it, we can talk about it later, but I'm going to knock you out of the road. And then he adds, and this, speaking of gospel truth, is more important than that. And the reason you don't share your faith is because it might be a little weird. He said, I don't respect that at all. Thus you see that the Bible actually outlines a cycle of evangelism similar to the agricultural cycle. Just as farming occurs in five distinct yet essential phases, preparing the soil, sowing the seed, cultivating the crop, harvesting the yield, and preserving the produce, likewise we are to win souls by preparing hearts with good deeds of friendship, beneficence, disinterested, benevolence, But beyond that, we should make sure to sow the seed of the word of God. We should cultivate spiritual interest with Bible study, follow-up ministry. We should challenge people to commit to Jesus Christ and harvest those decisions, either personally or in public evangelism, so they can commit their life to Christ in baptism. And we should preserve those new believers through an intentional discipleship plan that as scripture says, they not only give bread to the sower, but uh, bread to the eater and seed to the sower. They'll stay in the church and be a worker for Jesus Christ. Yet so much of the evangelistic work that's done today never gets past step one. Making friends through disinterested benevolence. We must realize the self-evident truth that if we are ever to experience a harvest we have to, at some point, sow the seed. Many make the mistake of not sowing the seed of truth because they're afraid they'll do it poorly or in so doing damage the friendship and harm the cause of Christ. I can't tell you how many people I've I've talked to about the importance of building friendships and doing good and showing love and revealing the character of Christ and disinterested benevolence. Oh, great, great. And then they establish that time over weeks, months, or even years. And then when it comes time to share the truth, they'll say, well, wait a minute. (laughs) I don't want to ruin the friendship. And friends, the whole point of the temporal friendship is to lead them to the eternal friendship with Jesus Christ. Think about it in the agricultural cycle. You go out and prepare the soil. You rotate till that ground, but you don't do it as an end of itself. You don't look and say, oh, how well done. And then go back out the next day and do it again and keep doing and doing and doing it. That's not, you cannot say that you have farmed. You might be doing farming, but you can't say the job is done. The same way when we try to introduce people to Jesus, we must start with that disinterested, sincere friendship approach, but never think for a moment that that's all we have in mind. There are absolutely strings attached. I want to attach you to Jesus Christ. So while we never want to approach someone with Bible truth in a careless manner, we often go to the opposite extreme of being so cautious that we never actually sow the gospel seed at all. You know, Ecclesiastes, the wisest man ever to live, speaks of this. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Go there in your Bibles, if you would, please. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, the scripture talks about in chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, quote, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. All right, just think about the simple logic. Again, it's from the agricultural mindset, right? Right? But if you're intent now to sow the seed and to get that crop going, if you're always waiting for the atmospheric conditions to be just right, the barometric pressure, the winds out of this direction, the time of the day, the time of the year, the the condition, if everything has to be just perfect, just waiting for it. He says, he who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. He goes on to speak so plainly. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. And in the evening, do not withhold your hand. And here's why you work this way. For you do not know which will prosper? Now let's put a time out here. You do not know which will prosper. How many times, from our limited, finite, fallen perspective, do we prejudge our audience whether they would be receptive to the gospel truth or not? Yes. Well, they say, "Oh, that's not promised. That one won't." Grow. Well, I know. Well, I know from my experience, or I've seen these people, it. And we're always waiting for, and I've seen this in church members so many times, like, I just don't know when or how or where or what. or. And we get so timid, so cautious, that we're always waiting for these spiritually atmospheric conditions to be just so. We walk away without doing anything. And scripture tells us that we do not know which will prosper. And that's only logical. We don't know what will work. So when in doubt, do everything. You do not know which will prosper. And look at the options that are given in Scripture. Either this or that. And if it stopped there with a period, we say, that's right. That one might work or that one might work. Did you know there's a third option? Or whether both alike will be good. (laughs) Even in our own commitments to Jesus, we think too low an estimate of the work he wants us to do, right? We think, oh, this one might work or that one might work, but surely at least something will work, <laughs> right? That best case scenario, Lord, give me even one. Why do, we, why do we lower the bar of expectation on Jesus? See what I'm saying? And scripture doesn't allow that. He says, no, 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 you don't know which will work. This one might work or that one might, or both. Both alike will be good. Thus, when we go to the New Testament, we see the same kind of speaking here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. I mean, clearly that is inspired insight. But can we not agree that that's also common sense? That if you don't sow much, you won't get much that there's a direct correlation between sowing and reaping, between planting and harvesting. Friends, but I can tell you, in the evangelistic cycles of many local members or churches or ministries, we'll often say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a disinterested benevolence. We're going to do good work. And then we're going to hold a harvest campaign. And so we're going to prepare the soil and call for decisions without really having a strategy to sow the seed of the Word of God, to cultivate the... Let's let's, let's walk through the cycle for just a minute. If you were to practice, like the San Francisco church, have all those different ways of gathering interests, people who might have a heart for Jesus Christ, might be open to spiritual things, to spiritual truth. And as you go along that work, what do you do next... Well, you would sow the seed of the Word of God. You've prepared their hearts through disinterested benevolence, then you perhaps give them a glow track. Share a little bit of your personal testimony. Invite them to a church service or a meeting that's coming up, right? Put something spiritual intentionally into that interaction. Then let's say that they rise to the bait, if you will. They're like, hey, that would be interesting. I would like, what do you do then? Let me give you an example. Let's take a health expo. This is the Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. Here's sometimes what happens. You'll put on a big health expo. I love the New Start acronym, by the way. It's so nice and it flows so well and it ends up with trust in God at the end of the New Start program, right? And so if someone's come from the community, they're interested in knowing their blood pressure or whatever the other metrics are that you're counting there. And they're um, relieved to see that some things, but they also recognize there's some changes in other things. They need to get more sleep. They need to drink more water. They need to take time to rest and exercise and all the good things, right? And out of the 45 people that attend, let's say that there are five that at the end of the process, at stop T, right? Trust in God recognize that not only do they have a physical health, to concern, health concerns, but there are some spiritual health concerns they need to address as well. And they might say something like, you know, I, I grew up in the church, but we haven't really been for years. Or, or my family was always this, but I, I wasn't. Or I used to be committed to the Lord and, and, and I haven't in a long time. Or I've never really studied with the Bible. I, 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 but clearly I'm open to whatever would make me better, you know. They give some sort of indication. And so they take a little interest card and they put down their name, their contact information on a little piece of paper. Then what? For many people, the right thing to do with those cards is to prayerfully and carefully deliver them to the pastor. And you say, all right, my job is done. I have done the good works now it's your turn to take the spiritual baton right friends the Lord is looking for a people who will lead people into the truth not just to demonstrate over here and then pass over there see what I'm saying and the more you do that you can say well I only got five well great do another one and you'll get five more Is it possible that there's a bit of a numbers game involved? And I don't want to be unspiritual about this, but the reality is not everyone is going to be interested in spiritual things. You do not know which will work, either this or that, or maybe they all will, but you don't know. But your job isn't to predetermine who's going to be receptive. Your job is to simply be faithful in doing good and offering the divine invitation. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. By the way, (laughs) let's say that someone does show a sign of spiritual interest. What do you do with them? Well, you offer them the opportunity to study the Bible. The, The Bible itself says that it is the Bible that grows us spiritually, that we're built up by the word, we're revived by the word. That as little babes, we should desire the pure milk of the word that we may grow thereby, Peter tells us. And this oftentimes is the most time-consuming, labor-intensive, and potentially frustrating element in the cycle of evangelism. Let's take it back to the agricultural cycle for a minute. If you s- prepare the soil, even if you have a large garden plot at home, how long does that really take? Maybe a day, a couple days, most, right? Okay. Then you sow the seed. You introduce the seed to the soil, right? How long does that take? Maybe a day as well, right? Each of those are standoff, stand-alone events. Preparing the soil, check. Sowing the seed, check. But then you get to that next phase. And I can tell you, this is where I... I don't know if I have a green thumb or not because I haven't had the patience to really find out. (laughs) Right? Because what happens then, you put that seed in the soil and as a young child, they give you that little styrofoam cup, you know, with a seed in it or something. And I had this jack-in-the-beanstalk expectation. Things were going to erupt out of the ground and i would having produce all... You know, but I would come back the next day and you know what I see? Dirt! (laughs) Right? And it doesn't look like much. I'm like, ah! Wah, wah. You know, it's just nothing. And another day... and the same thing happens and finally you start to see little things, some, some response, right, from the ground and it starts to grow up. But then you have to like, you're not getting produce off of there anytime soon. It's going to take a minute, right? It's going to take a few minutes and days and weeks and, and you have to guard it carefully, right? If, there, if it's berries, you got to watch out for the birds or the animals. you got to put up fences and things like that and you got to deal with the the, the, the pesticide things and all the different herbs all the things that could hurt it, right? It's this fragile little thing and you have to pull out weeds and you have to make sure it gets enough water and enough sunlight and enough soil and it takes time. And the same thing is true in the cultivation phase of the cycle of evangelism. It takes time to lead someone through Bible truth. It takes time. And especially if you're presenting distinctive truth, present truth that might cut counter to what their previous experience has been. If you talk to someone about the state of the dead and it doesn't coincide with their ideas of where grandma has been, it might take them a minute. Also, by the way, when people are interested in spiritual things, do you think Satan is going like, well, I guess we lost another one? No, (laughs) Satan is very interested in souls. And he's going to work to distract and dissuade and di- discourage and to tempt. And, and you might get three weeks into this, four weeks into this, six months into this. And they might say, you know what, this just isn't for me. And it doesn't produce. Have you ever had a crop that you spent all this time and it didn't produce? Yes. And it can be very frustrating. It's very appealing to do the disinterested benevolence, good works ministries. It's very fun to distribute literature or something, have like a -a glow-a-thon. How many can we do this here? Have some sort of event, right? And all of that is good, to do a direct mailing, to go door-to-door, all that kind of stuff. But when people are interested, you have to take the time and walk them through. Thus, there's a simple truth that's being explained in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. If you know that it that you're going to have a huge number of people who are interested in the temporal needs, but that's going to whittle down when it gets to the spiritual needs. And even with that, that number is going to go down. You look and say, oh, evangelism doesn't work when it comes time to the harvest. No, (laughs) we just need to change our perspective of what's needed to make it work, right? And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's the two parts of it, if you sow meagerly, Sparingly you also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Likewise, Isaiah chapter 32, verse 20. Blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. Blessings all over the place for just spreading the word of God wherever it happens to fall. Scripture's clear and common sense dictates that it is far better to risk failure because of a poor approach than to guarantee failure by making no approach at all. I'll say it again, it's better to risk failure by making a poor approach than to guarantee failure by making no approach. Yes, there is risk involved in sharing the word of God. Not everyone potentially will be interested. And you might be tempted to be discouraged or disheartened. But you got to remember, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. There's common sense to it. And oftentimes we say, well, I don't want to mess up the friendship. I don't want to do it wrong. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And so we think that the better course is to back off and let, just let my light shine in good works and hope they pick up on it somewhere. No, 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 no. You let your light shine, you prepare the soil of the heart for the purpose of sowing seed. And we don't know which will work. This or that or whether both alike will be good. You know, in modern evangelism, I mean, this is a perfect example of it right now. We're on television, streaming online around the world. Hundreds, even thousands of people at a time can tune in. And it's very tempting to think, well, that's the way it's going to work, right? If we can just get the best advertising strategy or put these technological resources to their best optimal use. You know, if we can have an, a billboard campaign and a social media blast and a this and And I'm for all of that, to be clear. But if this coronavirus has taught us anything, is that people miss people? Yes. Yes. People need people. God ordained us to be people, people. And it's easy to say, well, we've got this big thing. We've got a logo now, so surely it'll work, (laughs) right? We've got a good title. We've got a banner. We've got a social media ad blitz. We've got this. We're going to do a direct mailer. We're going to do it. But at the end of the day, studies still show that the single most effective way to win souls is by personal direct communication. Studies show that 75 to 90% of Christians come to Christ because of the influence of a friend or a relative. Inside the Seventh-day Adventist Church, 57% of all new members in the Seventh-day Adventist Church were invited to evangelistic meetings or to a church service by friends or relatives. And you do it every time. And I'm, I'm guilty of this myself. Man, if we had a big enough mailing, if we had a big enough billboard campaign, if we had a big enough push for yard signs and bumper stickers and social media and this and that, and all of what we call the passive, right? And yes, that helps. I'm not going to be here saying, you know, take that away. What we need is to understand all of the things that work and do all of them more and better. But at the end of the day, that personal connection, when someone sees that you care, they know that you love them, it gives so much credibility to the message that it becomes almost undeniable. So let's talk in the last few minutes about some practicality. How do I do that? Let's say that we actually do those felt needs community things and and I've got someone in my life who I built this friendship with. What do I actually say? How do I, like, you know, introduce the gospel seed? I think people have this picture in their mind that, like, you're going to go from raking their yard to, like, in the middle of the afternoon, like, friend, have you accepted Jesus? (laughs) That it's going to be, like, this direct appeal. And maybe if the Spirit leads you there, I'm not saying that's wrong, but but that's why I think we're afraid that we're going to come in from zero to a hundred, boom, and break the friendship. When the reality is that we can test the soil of the heart by sowing. We can do, take a little soil sample by throwing some test seeds, if you will. Right? It doesn't have to be a big thing. But if they're talking about, let's say, the weather. Man, the weather is crazy these days. about the fires and the, and the hurricanes. And, the, and you can say, yeah, in fact, this week at church, we were just talking about how the Bible talks about those very things. And then watch how they respond, right? Don't just pass it along. You're doing it purposefully, right? Desire of Ages, by the way, tells us what Jesus was looking for. A lot of times these Jesus movies show Jesus as this almost like ethereal, otherworldly figure who's just spouting off abstract knowledge into the wind. You know what Jesus was watching when he would preach? He was watching the faces of the people looking for response, Looking for those little evidences of conviction, a little sign of interest, that they would come back. And he could then follow up with that, right? Now, two things might happen if you say, you know, the Bible talks about that, or we heard about this at church this week, or I was just reading about this in one of my devotional books. Put a little drop of spiritual into the conversation. One of two things is going to happen. Either they're just going to be like, yeah, anyway, that's great, and move on. Have you broken the friendship? No but you have laid the groundwork that you're a spiritual person, right? Or they might say, really, the Bible, I, didn't, I never heard about that. I never thought about the Bible talking about weather. It's like, yeah, actually, it's true. You want to, And then you follow up. Would you like me to share with Sure, right? Sow some test seeds. If you're looking for someone to study the Bible with, you can go door to door in your neighborhood. Amen. Bring them some nice things. By the way, door to door, it gets a bad rap. <laughs> Nobody enjoys it. But the other day, In the Michigan conference, we took some of our conference officers. We were going out door to door around the territory of the conference office itself. And in so doing, they ran into a political candidate who was doing what? Going door to door. Canvassing folks door to door around neighborhoods. And at the same time, we also saw some people from a business going door to door, canvassing for interests, right? Now, whenever they wanna sell you new siding or windows or a roof or something like that, and they come to your door or or a candidate for office comes to your door, obviously, something must work. Now, I don't know if they're expecting every single person they talk to, but enough do that they're saying, this is worth my time and my attention and my efforts, right? The same thing is true in the church. Go meet some people. Just go talk to them. See how they would be interested, perhaps, in studying the Bible with you, okay? You could, of course, mail direct Bible study invitation cards. Friends, let me tell you about this one. You could visit backslidden members of your churches, Did you know that most Seventh-day Adventist churches, at least in our North American context, have at least twice as many people in the books as they do in attendance? At some point in their experience, those people had a love for the Lord and his truth. And I don't know if it was doctrinal, but odds are it was probably interpersonal. And they haven't been living the life they know they need to. They might be outside of that saving relationship with God, but they know in their hearts there is that old flame that could be revived. Just waiting for people to come and talk to them, that personal touch. Unbaptized youth in your church. Do you know there's a ripe field of harvest right from under our feet, oftentimes, in our own families? Or how about this one? In the morning, before you head out for work, specifically ask the Lord for divine appointments. For all the advertising, for all the different innovations that are out there, for all of our different strategies, we have to remember that what we're engaging is is a spiritual activity. That it's going to be divinely ordained by God, whatever success we have. And so as we go out door to door, or in our workplaces, or in our schools, or in our normal activities of life, don't just... Think of outreach as that one thing you do over here, but think of it as a lifestyle that I'm always, while I'm buying my beans over here, I'm looking for a soul over here, right? And like, Lord, I'm going to be watching and please, Lord, give me that opportunity. And as you partner with Jesus, or as scripture says, or a spirit of prophecy tells us, be co-laborers with him, that he's going to keep his end of the bargain, that he's going to give you those opportunities. If you say, Lord, here am I, send me. Give me an opportunity to demonstrate your goodness through disinterested benevolence. And when that opportunity comes, Lord, give me the spiritual courage. Give me the tact. Give me the Christ likeness to sow that gospel seed. And I don't know which will work. But I covenant with you this morning that I'm going to work for your glory. Friends, I hope that is your prayer today. I know that it's mine. That I want to be more like Jesus. That I hope. By God's grace, that people can see in my life a sincerity, an authenticity that says, You've been with Jesus. But I don't wanna stop there. I wanna sow that seed for the gospel truth. I wanna look for those opportunities. And as we partner with Jesus, He's promised to do His work. Let's just be sure to do our work with Him. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the example of Jesus, for the testimony of Scripture. And for the insights from the spirit of prophecy. All of which paint an unmistakably clear picture, not only of the message we have been given to bear, but the method in which we bear it. Lord, help us each one individually and as ministries and churches corporately to reflect the working labor of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to prepare hearts by good deeds. Help us then, Lord, when those interests are aroused, to to sow the seed of the word of God at every opportunity, in the morning and the evening, let us not withhold our hand. Lord, also give us the patience and tact and humility to walk through that cultivating process of giving those Bible studies and calling for the decisions that will lead to baptism and deep commitments, lifelong commitments to Jesus. And Lord, help us to integrate new members by continuing that discipleship plan so that by your grace, they too will be workers in the cause of Christ. Lord, give us the mind of Christ so we can do the labor of Christ so that soon and very soon we will see Jesus Christ face to face. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.